Jesus speaks about money more than any other topic, as I'm sure maybe you've heard before. He speaks about money and our relationship to money about 15% of the time he talks. That means every seven lessons that Jesus gives, one of them is on money. He only talks about everything else six other times and comes back to money every seventh time. And so I couldn't teach on money as often as Jesus did, or I don't think I'd have a church. Um, But we are at a point in his text where we can't avoid it. And so we are looking at... um, Matthew, as we continue in Matthew, and we are in chapter 6, and I'm jumping back to touch on verses 2 to 4 that we missed um, last week, uh, looking at the three spiritual disciplines of of giving, prayer, and fasting, and then we are moving on to treasures in heaven after that. But the important thing to keep in mind here is that God is, sorry, Jesus, well, God, (laughs) God through Jesus, and uh, is teaching... um, his disciples about the reality of being kingdom citizens. This is what Jesus' Sermon on the Mountainside is about. And we keep coming back to reemphasize this so that you have the context of what Jesus is teaching. He is telling us, this is what citizens of my kingdom look like. And he describes them in the Beatitudes. This is what blessed people, favored people of God should resemble. And then he explains the relationship that his kingdom people are meant to have with the world. He says we are to be salt and light. This is how my kingdom interacts with the rest of the kingdoms in the world. We are a benefit to them. And then he says this is how my kingdom people will follow the law of my kingdom. I fulfill the law, but I expect you to still follow the commands of the law sincerely from a sincere heart. And then he says, this is how my kingdom people are to interact with God through the spiritual disciplines of giving alms and through prayer and through fasting. And he talks about the sincerity of our heart. And so Jesus is really going through in the Sermon on the Mount, this is a picture of citizenship in my kingdom that has come. And it's important to know here and to note that at each stage of his teaching, Jesus is saying things that are utterly shocking. He says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the meek and blessed are the persecuted. And he says things like, you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees or you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, love your enemies and pray for people who do harm to you. He says, be perfect as God is perfect. He says, if you don't forgive those who are in your debt, God won't forgive your debt either. I mean, this is just hard hit after hard hit after hard hit from Jesus in terms of phrases that shock us. He's been teaching at each stage that his people have new attitudes, they have new affections, they have new ambitions that look completely different from the world. God's people are noticeable because they act and react very differently. And now Jesus is going to talk about money, and his theme doesn't change. The things that he has to say about money are shocking. The things that he has to say about money are that we are going to look far different from the world in how we manage money, and the way we treat money should be different than the way other people in other kingdoms treat it. Kingdom citizens treat money differently. And importantly, Jesus wants to warn, just like he warned uh, about the attention of men, he wants to warn people that there is a danger to money as well. That 
the proper place for our generosity and and what it should have before God and before others and the proper role of earthly treasure in the life of a kingdom citizen. And so first let's look at Matthew 6, 2-4. Again, going back and just covering some of the text that we didn't get to last week because this is dealing with money here. He says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and that your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so Jesus is forcing his disciples or his followers to ask themselves, what is the motive of your giving? Where is your heart at when you give? And what are you giving? And why are you giving? Does your giving bear the marks of true Christianity? Are we Christ-like in our mercy towards those that are needy? Are we image bearers of God in our passion for his mission in the world that those that are in poverty, whatever poverty they're experiencing, would find that need met in his kingdom? Do we have the open-handed generosity of our Father? Or are we, on the other hand, stingy? Is our giving grudging or is it joyful? Are we motivated by the need of the people we're reaching or are we motivated by the praise of the people that are watching? So Jesus says that not only should others not be able to know what you're giving, but you should give in such a way that you don't even really know what you're giving. There's this great song from the 80s And one of the lines in the song is, she's no fine, there's no telling where the money went. In other words, my girlfriend is so great, the money just kind of flies out of my wallet and I have no idea where the money goes. And this is kind of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, your generosity, your compassion, your desire to give should be so amazing that you don't even know where the money's going. You don't even really pay attention to how much money you're giving. You don't know what's going on with the money because it's just flowing through you. And that's going to be a theme of the message this morning is that God's people, kingdom people, are people who money flows through. It doesn't get stopped up and dammed up in our bank accounts. It comes to us and then it flows on to others. But God intends to reward your secret giving. And part of that secret reward, I believe, is the immediate tangible impact of your willing and joyful giving to the kingdom of God. And this is what I mean. We know that there's a sense in which our righteous obedience is meant to be noticed. Uh, In the previous few verses of chapter 5, Jesus said, Let your light shine before man. That means it's visible. Jesus knows that we're going to have to visibly live godly way before the world if we are to serve as Christians. And we're actually commanded to let our light shine. So on the one hand, Jesus says, your individual giving will be in secret. People shouldn't know what you're doing. You shouldn't be blowing a trumpet. You shouldn't be making a big deal about the checks that you write. You shouldn't even really be paying attention to your money. But collectively, your light will shine before men if you are obedient. And so that people will see the results of your giving. The world will be impacted by the generosity of kingdom people. And I'll look in scripture here for an example. I want to show you what I mean. And and we can look at the generosity of the church of Philippi to see what what I mean by this. The, The generosity of this church was documented by the Apostle Paul. And their generosity has been a light shining for the whole church to see now for almost 2,000 years. He says in Philippians 4, he says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
So Paul's trying to do ministry. There's one church that's supporting him. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for the need, my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. This is what Paul says about the church in Philippi. And I'm sure they did not intend, as a church, a little church in Philippi, that their generosity was going to be made public. Or that the light of their gift is still shining almost 2,000 years later. And that the fruit of the ministry that they supported Paul in is incalculable. I mean, consider, after Paul left Philippi, he says, when I left Macedonia, okay, he just happened on that trip after leaving Macedonia to then establish the churches in the cities of Corinth, Ephesus, and Thessalonica. I'm sure you've never heard of those churches, right? So yes, what we can be sure of is that the missions budget of the Philippian church seems to have borne a little bit of fruit in supporting Paul. Now, we don't know who in that church gave what. We, Paul doesn't pick out individuals and say, thanks, Mr. Moneybags, for your gigantic donation. There is no cornerstone in any of these churches that has the names of the donors on a plaque on that cornerstone, right? Jesus says your giving is in secret, and the Father who sees in secret will reward you. But that doesn't mean that your giving does not have incalculable value in the kingdom of heaven and that the light of your gift won't shine before men maybe for 2,000 years. And many people in that church in Philippi giving out of the, the, even the poverty that they had where they had very little but they gave to this mission knowing whether they gave a lot or whether they gave a little was not the point. The point was that they were obedient in giving in faith out of what they had. And so that is how we are to give, knowing that our light will shine, not what others will think or what reward the government will give us at tax time, but what reward there is in the kingdom. So Jesus teaches in this passage that his people will be motivated in giving by a clear and deliberate desire to please their heavenly father who's watching. He's watching to see our obedience and to share in the same passion and desire of the father, which is to rescue the needy and the lost. And in verse 4 we read, And your Father who sees in secret what is done in secret will reward you. And we come back, as we did last week as well, to this idea of reward. Jesus unashamedly talks about rewards, unabashedly declares that it's good to follow the commands of God. In this way, we do these things not because God doesn't want us to have any reward, but because God desires us to have the proper reward that flows from obedience. Well, what is the reward to a believer who's obedient in giving in this way? If you were to give generously and compassionately in this way, what would be your reward that's neither public nor necessarily future? I think it's probably the reward which genuine love wants when making a gift to the needy. Your reward is to see that need relieved or the purpose fulfilled when through God's gifts the hungry are fed, the naked are clothed, the sick are healed, the oppressed are freed, the lost are saved. Is that not our reward? That the needy have been rescued, that the gospel has gone forth, that those in despair have found hope, that those that are lost are found. So if we're Christ-like and image bearers of God, then we will share in the same ambition that Christ has to seek and save the lost. That was his passion and that's our passion. And that's how Christ here in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning this section on giving prayer and fasting, opens up to say, this is what my kingdom people give like. They give like this. 
That's on the positive side of his treatment of money. I hope, and his hope is what he's saying, is I hope you have this generosity and that you give this way, not like hypocrites, not like people who are looking for the glory of man, but for the glory of God and for the reward in the kingdom. As he finishes this section, we move on now to another teaching that Jesus immediately circles back to on money and the proper role of money in the kingdom and its citizens. And this is at the end of the section that we were at last week. And as Jesus concludes that section, he comes back to this idea of reward and where kingdom people should be seeking to place their reward. He first contrasted the praise of man with the pleasure of God, and now Jesus contrasts accumulating earthly treasure against accumulating heavenly treasure, and he contrasts living with money as a master or living with God as your master. And so this text I wrestled with for a little while. Because Jesus teaches about 15% of the time on money, and Paul and Peter and others do as well, and John, there is lots of stuff to go to. But what I want to do is we, the, the framework I want to give you is that we're going to look at this text in two parts, and I'm going to let Jesus teach on his own text through his own words in uh, two parables. And so we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to look at parables of Jesus, which explain to us what he's saying in the text. So the first thing is a contrast of earthly treasure and heavenly treasure. He says in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. And so Jesus says here there's two kingdoms and there's two treasures. There's the kingdom of earth and treasures on earth and there's the kingdom of heaven and there's treasures in heaven. And in case you need reminding, you belong to the kingdom of heaven, right? This is Jesus teaching to his disciples and to those that are listening and he's saying, I'm talking to my disciples right now. If you're a disciple of mine, you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You don't want treasure here when you can have treasure there. It's better... It's a better kingdom you belong to and a better treasure that you can have. And so this earthly treasure is going to pass away. It's ultimately useless, but heavenly treasure is forever. And I think most of us have heard that verse. We understand that's what Jesus is talking about. And earthly treasures, we immediately understand. We're surrounded by them, and we've heard Jesus talk about them in various teachings. It's clothing, it's food, it's barns full of stuff. It's all of the things that we have on earthly pleasures. But what are the heavenly treasures? That's the question. And how do we use earthly treasures to achieve heavenly treasures? And one of my favorite parables, probably my second favorite parable, is the parable of the dishonest or the shrewd manager in Luke. And it's helpful here. And I won't read the whole parable. We'll put it up on the screen. But I will summarize it for you. The idea of this parable, as Luke tells his disciples, is that there is a manager of an estate and the master is away on a business trip and the master finds out that his manager hasn't been doing a good job and so he says, I'm going to fire you when I get back. So this manager knows that his job is going to be done at some point in the near future. But in the meantime, he still has accesses, access to the resources of the manager. And so while he still has access to the master's resources right now, he immediately starts to cut deals with people around him, 
adjusting what they owed on their bill so that when he eventually is fired from the current situation that he's in, in his job, he will have favor with these people who he has basically leveraged the resources of the master to make friends with. And Jesus, after this, this, this manager does this, Jesus' summary at the end of this parable is quite startling. It's not what you expect. It says, he says, The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. It's an incredible parable where Jesus is essentially contrasting again treasures in heaven and treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. He's saying here, use earthly money to win eternal friends in heaven. You all and I are going to get fired from this job at some point in the future. We are going to depart from this place where we have access to the resources that the master has made available to us. And when we get fired from this place and move on from it, what we have done with these resources will depend on how many friends we have in our life after this one. He says, this guy understood what was going on. The master is returning, and you are no longer going to have access to his resources. So while you do have access to these resources temporarily, Jesus says, use them up for eternal kingdom rewards. God will commend you for leveraging what he gave you temporarily on earth in order to receive eternal reward. And we were talking about this just yesterday, and a friend of mine actually rephrased this truth very concisely, and she didn't even know what I was talking about today. (laughs) But she said quite insightfully that the only eternal things on earth are people. And that's true. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying the only eternal things on earth are people. And so if you want any heavenly eternal reward, the only thing you're going to bring with you are people. So use the temporary treasure of this world to make friends for yourself and have eternal reward. Luke 12:32 says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail. And the common thread of Jesus' teaching on money is essentially that it's not for accumulating, it's for distributing. If you have accumulated more property than you need, then he says sell it and distribute it. Or even better, don't let too much money and too much property accumulate in the first place. You don't have to sell your extra stuff if you don't buy it at all. So money is meant to flow through disciples and it's meant to flow on to kingdom purposes. It's how God redirects earthly wealth into the purposes of his gospel and his kingdom. Jesus often says it's dangerous to hold on to a lot of money and possessions. Jesus often tells us it is dangerous to be rich in earthly treasure. But I looked and I can't find that he ever said it's wrong to make a lot of money. He just said it's really risky for disciples to hang on to money. Feel free to make money. Just don't hang on to it. Jesus expects money to flow through his people for money to be redirected by Christian influence rather than by worldly influence. The more money that's under Christian influence, the better. We want that. And so make money, just don't hold on to it. This is the contrast that Jesus makes between earthly treasures and heavenly treasures and how his disciples are meant to use earthly treasures in order to gain heavenly treasures. 
But then he goes on to another contrast. It's the contrast in his disciples or in the heart of any person of whether you are building your own kingdom or whether you're building God's kingdom. There's two parables I could use here, either the parable of the barns and the rich fool or the parable of the rich young ruler. He says in this second part of the text, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And I'm sure pretty much all of us have heard that verse before. Jesus says there has to be a choice between two kingdoms. You can't serve them both. Now that initial text in the middle there is a little bit interesting. This eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eye is healthy, but if your eye is bad, your whole body, like what does that have to do with anything? And I think it's a little easier to understand if we understand that Jesus is teaching in a way similar to James using a method that James used. You remember in James when he talks about the tongue. And he says the tongue is a very small part of the body. But even though it's such a tiny part of the body, the tongue can set forests on fire and just out of control wildfire. You guys remember that teaching, right? This is the kind of style or a similar method of teaching that Jesus is using. And he's saying that the, that the eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is that... It's your view on the world. It's your perspective. It's the lamp that illuminates your path, and it's the way in which you look at things. It's, it's kind of literally the way we would say today, a worldview. It's the filter that processes everything we see. It's the only perspective we have. And he's saying if our view on things is sick or distorted or even darkened, then we are in true darkness. Because if we can't see clearly, it doesn't matter how much light is around someone who is blind, they're still in darkness. And so that's what Jesus means by this text. He's saying, be careful, disciples, that you are seeing money clearly. Be careful that you're seeing earthly treasures clearly. Because if you're not seeing clearly, it is darkness indeed. He says you can't serve money and God, even though many Christians try. One has to win over the other. You either put wealth beneath God and serve God with your wealth, or else you set money ahead of God and he comes second to your wealth. And again, a parable that we could use to this is the rich fool in his barns. Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 12, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. This is another one of his, must have been that seventh sermon coming around again. I'm going to teach you again if you haven't heard it before. Be careful and be on your guard for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable about the land of a rich man which produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and there I'll store my grain and all my goods, all my toys, all my stuff. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for years. Relax and eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So the one who lays up tre- so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And so you see here that this man, God was serving his wealth. It says that he had the land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
And so this, so God was blessing him. God was pouring out wealth on this man. And he decided that he should have the wealth ahead of God. So it's like, thank you, God, for pouring out all this wealth. I'm glad that you are funneling all this wealth into my bank accounts and into my barns. That's great. But the wealth is the primary thing. I'm going to build places for it and store it up. You are the secondary thing. You're the provider of the wealth. And the danger that Jesus wants to point out here is that you can't serve two masters. That's the way it's always going to be. It's always going to be that you're going to wake up in the morning thinking, now is my wealth and is my industriousness and is my energy and is my kingdom, the thing that I'm doing in my life, is it ultimately for the kingdom of God? Am I working today for God's kingdom or am I working for my kingdom? Because it'll be one or the other. Or you'll wake up in the morning and you'll say, one way or the other, the things that I do, the way that God blesses me, the ability to go to work, the, the money that I earn, the things that I do, the life that I'm building, it's ultimately to serve God's kingdom. So thank you for these things, God, but it's all flowing to you. And now rarely do we wake up in the morning and make that decision that plainly. But I encourage you, some morning this week, wake up and make that decision that plainly. Am I waking up to build my kingdom? Or am I building this kingdom and, and, and accepting and, and working alongside and with God and the blessing that he's giving me so that ultimately his kingdom gets served out of what he's given me. Every few generations of Christianity seem to have a blind spot to a particular cultural sin. And it shows up when future generations look back on those previous generations and they wonder, how did they not see it? How did Christians in that era not see the mistake they were making? And in some centuries, it was a blindness to unjust legal penalties that were just a holdover, just a result of the church and Christians being in the culture of, you know, hanging and burning and torturing and imprisoning people. And that happened even by Christian courts because that was just, that's how you did penalties. That's how you did justice. And we look back and we think, how barbaric. How did they not see that Jesus thought something different? And then at another time, many Christians even justified slavery. Even at the same time other Christians were eliminating it, there were Christians who sincerely felt that this was the right order of things. And we look back as their grandkids and great-grandkids and think, how did they miss that? How did Christians think that way? And I can't help but think that our grandchildren or great-grandchildren are going to look back on the century of 1950 to maybe 2050 as the century of rampant materialism and misappropriation of wealth. I think our great-grandchildren as believers may look back on our generation and wonder how did they not see how wealthy they were and why did they not help the needy as a nation, as a church, as an individual, maybe it's your grandparents and your, wealth, your grandchildren and your wealth. And I'm not just talking about needing food or shelter or medicine. In fact, in our community and in our culture, by and large, food, shelter, and medicine are actually available to the degree that most people need it. What I mean, when I talk about neediness and poverty, I mean a community in a country that needs the message of the gospel. And they need the resources of a church that can bring hope to their despair. I'm talking about a teenage generation in high schools where 30% of the students struggle with suicidal thoughts. 
I'm talking about a culture where relationships are breaking apart, where households experience abuse, where people are struggling to get out of the chains of addiction, where people are bound up by deception and lies about their worth and their identity. And yet, in our culture where this is taking place, and I don't mean Canada, I mean Halliburton, there is not even one full-time biblical counselor in our community. Not even one that could meet this need. We need like 10, okay? Just in Halliburton. And that's just one area of need in our community that goes unfulfilled. And future generations may look back and say, church, you were sitting right there. The newspaper was clear about the needs around you. How did you miss it? Did you really need another 50 channels on your cable? Did you really need that extra two bedrooms or whatever it is? We have to see. Do we see the dangerous reality of materialism as clearly as Jesus saw it and taught his disciples? By all means, make money. Just let it flow through you to serve kingdom's purposes. You are not earning money simply to build your own kingdom, but to have eternal treasures in the form of brothers and sisters in heaven and to alleviate the poverty that is around us. It's interesting thing here is that Jesus is not actually talking to rich people. He doesn't let the lower and middle class of us just pass this problem on to people that we think are swimming in money. He does talk to rich people quite directly in many places, but in Matthew, he's, really talk, he's not really talking to the rich. We know he's not talking to the rich because in the following verses that we're going to study next week, he says, don't worry about clothing and don't worry about food. God will provide clothing and food. You know what rich people don't worry about? Clothing and food. Jesus is not talking to rich people here. He's just talking to regular, middle-class, blue-collar, run-of-the-mill disciples. And he's saying that you should not be so concerned about these things in the future when there are needs to be taken care of right now. You can live a humble enough lifestyle and you should be living a humble enough lifestyle that you recognize your need for God's provision. If you've gotten yourself to a lifestyle where you just don't need God's provision at all, then Jesus is definitely talking to you. You're now in the rich category. But Jesus is talking to all of his disciples. The attitude of the Christian giver is not, I'll make sure everything is financially secure, and then whatever's left over after I've covered all the bases, I'll give out of that. Jesus says, give out of whatever you've been blessed with and you have today, and give enough that it causes you to trust God for what you need in the future. Now, we also want to be aware of what Jesus is not saying as well. He's not saying that you should not earn money or you should not work or you should not create wealth in your community. He's not saying just drop out of the culture and freeload off others. Much as people in the 70s thought otherwise, Jesus was not a hippie. We're called from the very beginning to work in the world that God created. Genesis 2:15, he gives us work and then he further calls us to be generous out of the work that we look for and the work that we do, Ephesians 4:28. We have many biblical encouragements to be diligent workers. And so Jesus is not saying just drop out and don't work and just depend on me because you don't need any money. The poor don't get cared for if we all do that. He's also not saying don't be wise stewards. He's not saying don't ever have a bank balance or don't ever buy health insurance or provide shelter and education for your children or don't ever fix your leaky roof. I mean, if we don't fix our leaky roofs, then the church will have to come along and show us generosity to fix our roof for us. So 
Jesus is not saying don't be wise stewards. And we could go to Proverbs 13.22 and we could go to 1 Timothy 5.8 that says that anyone who does not provide for their family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And we could go other places in Scripture and see that Jesus is not saying that either. He's saying don't drop out and earn no money. That's not helpful and can't redirect wealth that way. And he's saying don't... He's, saying, he's not saying it's bad to ever have a bank balance or to care for your kids or to clothe them or to you know, make sure they have school and the roof's not leaking. What he is saying is that our view of wealth can be toxic or malignant. That's what he's saying when he says if the eye is bad, if the eye is dark, if the eye is sick, if the eye is malignant, is actually the phrase, the term for that word, then it's darkness indeed for you as a disciple of me. Jesus is saying it's risky to be attracted to and to be consumed by and to set your heart on riches and treasures. Money messes with our perception. And I think it is certainly true that more people have had their faith quietly shipwrecked by lives of plenty, like the rich fool in his barns, far more often than anyone has had their faith wrecked by experiencing great need. In fact, experiencing great need drives us closer to God most of the time. Experiencing great comfort tends to have us drift away. I'm convinced there are more people who have their faith shipwrecked by comfort than by need. Comfort is a deadly disease in Western Christianity. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Having money is hard. Having money is risky. The more you have, the more attention you have to pay to whether it is flowing through you or whether it's accumulating around you. Back to our text, Jesus says it plainly. You can't serve both God and money. When you wake up in the morning, your ambition is to serve either God or yourself with the day set before you. You serve either the heavenly kingdom or the earthly kingdom with your effort. You are either intent on distributing wealth or you are intent on accumulating it. And of course you have to earn it before you distribute it. But Jesus is asking his disciples to consider what is your aim? So as disciples of Jesus, we ask ourselves, are we like that shrewd steward? Are we like that dishonest manager that the master and Jesus commend? They both say this guy understands how to use temporary things that have been made available to us temporarily. And the only eternal thing that you can take with you is people. So make for yourselves friends who will receive you in heaven. Do we have that same ambition, that same mission that God and Jesus have Do we have the same ambition that Paul praises the Macedonian church for, bearing fruit for the kingdom? Where does our treasure go? Where does our effort go? What kingdom are we living to build? God's big kingdom plans get paid for by generous kingdom people. God has made us partners in his work. God allows us in obedience to participate in the fruitfulness of his kingdom building. And before I conclude with a little thing about Jesus, of course. I just want to say, this church is incredibly generous. As if you've been to any of the business meetings and things like that, our budget's healthy. We're doing well in terms of that. And we can pay for the ministries that we have, and we can do great things in terms of the church that we have. Here's the thing, though. I know for a fact, 
as I talked about, the need for ministry in the community is gigantic. And as your pastor and as your elders and as you guys, and you actually have a little exercise, a little thing at the end of your life group thing this week, as a church, we have to get our eyes outside of these walls because this is all great and we can care for each other really well. And that's good. We're supposed to do that. But we have to get our eyes outside this wall and realize the need that's out there. And it's great that we meet our budget. And it's great that we can pay for you know, Sunday school teachers and we can pay for children's ministry and youth group and we can, you know, the food that we need for family ministry. Like, it's, it's awesome that we can do that and we can have somebody in the high school. Like, that's good. But I'm telling you, that's just the start of the need that's out there. And I also know that even though we're killing our budget right now, we could probably double it if we gave the way Jesus calls us to give. The money that Jesus needs to do his ministry, he has it all. But as I'm sure you've heard before, the problem is just that it's in our pockets and it's got to get out. Jesus will call you to that. And as our example, we can look to Jesus. As God's people, we are being made day by day into image bearers that God intends us to be. Do you remember that from last week? All of God's commands, all of his laws are just to say, I've rescued you. I already rescued you out of Egypt. I'm giving you the law now so that you know how to be in relationship with me. I called you to be image bearers. You've destroyed the image bearing of me that I've given you, but here's my command so that you can be an image bearer. We are called to be image bearers of God. And this is how, in another way, God calls his disciples to bear his image. We become Christ-like in this manner. We can... Of course, consider Christ himself in this. Consider the ambition of Christ. Consider the satisfaction and the treasure that Christ treasures. Through the prophet Isaiah, God speaks to us about his suffering servant. He's, he's talking in Isaiah about the Messiah. And in chapter 53, 11, we have this amazing verse. It says, out of the anguish of his soul, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Isaiah is talking about the satisfaction of Jesus in the price he paid, in the anguish of his soul. In going to the cross, he's going to be satisfied. So what is it that Jesus saw that satisfied him? What was the treasure that Jesus gave himself to acquire? 1 Peter 2.4 As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's what Jesus gave. Jesus' satisfaction, his, the treasure of his heart was to save his people. It's us. Jesus treasured obedience to the Father and the salvation of his people over holding on to what he had before. Do you think Jesus wasn't rich? Jesus was rich. He had all the riches of heaven. He had them all to himself. He had the Father and the Holy Spirit and eternity with perfection in the Trinity and in heaven. But in Philippians 2.5, this was his attitude and his ambition. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or hung on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
We are to be image bearers of God. We bear the image of Christ. We receive our reward and are satisfied when we treasure eternal kingdom purposes and kingdom results over temporary satisfaction. Jesus said, I am going to give up all of this wealth, all of this glory, everything that I am as the Son of God, and I am going to sacrifice all of that in order to see kingdom rewards. I want to see my people come to Christ and come to the Father. Will we be image bearers of Christ in that way? Will we emulate our Savior that we are saying to ourselves, yeah, I've got all this money. God's blessed me. He's filled my barns. I got toys. I got a bank account. You know, I'm secure in a country that takes care of me. I got a health care system. I got a police force. I got all of this stuff. At some point, are we going to be like Christ and say, I don't need all of this. I can't. I can't hang on to all of this and let people go to hell and let people be lost in despair and let people suffer, let people be bound by chains of addiction. I'm going to give this up. I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to give up all that I have been blessed with in order to see heavenly reward. And in that way, if we do that, we are then image bearers of Christ because that's what Christ did for us. Gave up all the treasure so that he could suffer in anguish. But in that sacrifice, he saw the reward and he was satisfied. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Don't build up these earthly treasures. There's a reward for you in heaven. Look to that reward and be satisfied. That's your treasure. It's eternal. Thieves can't steal it. Moths can't eat it. Rust can't destroy it. That is the heart of Jesus' disciples when it comes to money. Let's pray. Father God, especially in our generation, but I'm sure for Jesus' disciples as well, these are hard lessons for us to hear because we are so attached to your creation because you made it good and we love it. Father, but we sometimes love the creation, often love the creation more than the creator. And we love the created more than we love the eternal reality of our brothers and sisters around us, that they have eternal souls and that we want to see them in heaven. So, Father, when we wake up in the morning, give us that nudge from your Holy Spirit. Give us that discipline to ask ourselves, what is all this for? It's not wrong that you blessed us with it. It's not wrong that we work to earn it. It's not wrong that we strive to do good, be faithful stewards. But only if we understand what it's all for. It's not for us. It's not for us to take with us. We can't is to accomplish your gospel, kingdom, redeeming, reconciling, restoring, healing purposes, kingdom purposes in the place where you planted us. So Father, help us to hold loosely to the treasures of this world and hold tightly to the treasures of next. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.